Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast episode 34. I'm Tina Duyeb and just like Marmite, it was very close to you not being able to find me in any UK Tesco stores anytime soon. But that was due to nearly getting a lifelong ban after an incident in the freezer aisle at the Edmonton branch. Again, 2016 refuses to slow down like a snowball of turds. A turd ball, if you will cascading down an ever-growing mountain of turds, and it seems like most of the UK were on a climbing trip at the time, and unfortunately they were carrying all of the British pounds with them in all of their pockets. Yes, it seems that when the Conservatives do keep banging on about making Britain great again, and the UKIPers keep on harking back to the good old days, it turns out they meant making it seem like it's 1985 all over again, with the pound at its lowest in 31 years. What with tensions running high between the West and Russia, Argentina also making demands about the Falklands and bloody Phil Collins making a musical comeback that no one asked for ever, we should probably all start donning shell suits and drinking 2020 and Thunderbird again, if only because that'll make us tons more flammable and when the entire world burns. The Bank of England has warned that inflation is set to rise, so great news if you're a bouncy castle owner. Tesco had a dispute on price rises with Unilever, which almost meant that they'd no longer be stocking food products such as Marmite. Though, with 50% of people liking Marmite and 50% hating it, there is obviously an overwhelming mandate to do without. However, it is now all resolved, and so now we'll be able to spoon-feed Hellman's mayonnaise out of the jar as a hard Brexit coping mechanism. And at the SNP conference, Nicola Sturgeon announced that a second referendum for Scottish independence is looking more likely than ever. And with no Marmite, inflation rises and the return of bloody Phil Collins, I don't blame them. I only hope it'll be referred to as Indy 2, Temple of Doom. Theresa May has told the NHS there will be no extra money for them and that they need to make more cuts, seemingly misunderstanding that the NHS's job is to stitch those up. And it's been decided that there will be no plans to commission a royal yacht for the Queen, despite MPs saying it's the only way to make Brexit successful. I guess that's because sending the Queen off to sea is pretty much exporting her, and yes, we'd make a tidy profit from that. So yeah, all of that and even more on this week's, again, slightly croaky-voiced show. It's almost as if by doing a job where I talk for the living, it takes me longer to heal a sore throat or something. <laughs> Weird. I mean, maybe just imagine this week that your weekly serving of political quips and chat is served up by Batman. 
Although the fact that Batman is essentially a rich bloke who chose to be a vigilante rather than, you know, just contributing financially to society really means that it wouldn't be ideal with the ethics that I hope this podcast has. Yeah, sell your fancy car and sponsor a school instead, you pointy-eared twat. Thanks, as always, for listening to this show. Uh, whether you be a professional listener, uh, that's what I've now decided to call people that have listened to every episode, uh, or a newbie. Uh, and if you arrived here due to seeing me at the QED conference this past weekend, then a very, very warm welcome to you indeed. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to 650 sceptics, and I was very pleased that someone only tried to heckle me with actual facts once. Uh, it was great also meeting some veteran listeners of this show, including uh, Mike, or was it Mikey, uh, who very kindly interrupted me while I was getting my breakfast, as he didn't want to interrupt me while I was eating my breakfast. Uh, and he did all that just to say how much he enjoyed this. So that was very lovely and very considerate, as it's very hard for me to say thanks to a comment like that when I have got a mouthful of crassin. So well-timed, Mikey. Um, I didn't get to attend as much of the QED conference as I wanted to due to other shows I was doing this weekend, uh, but I did get a hilarious Derek Nakora commemoration paper plate. Uh, I met lots of interesting and very lovely people, um, several of whom I hope to get on this show at some point, and I did watch a panel on whether or not we are now in an era of post-truth, not just in politics but in everything, and uh, those definitely want to get a couple of those speakers on this show. Um, However, So I was there at the QED conference listening to a conversation about how cursed ventriloquist stole Michael Gove said that the people are tired of experts uh, and their comment was on how it was a very snobbish thing to say, snobbish elitism, because it's not that Michael Gove was tired of experts himself, but the people are, and therefore it's all a bit hard and confusing for the common person. And that all sort of made me interested and angry at once. And then merely hours later, uh, I was at the Cheltenham Literary Festival as my wife was there reading her essay from the excellent book, The Good Immigrant, which is Radio 4's book of the week this week, so do pick it up. Um, And while I was there, I found myself backstage almost face-to-face with Michael Gove himself. Weird, huh? And I'm really sorry to say I didn't do anything. Uh, I think I was partly in shock that only hours before I was listening to some very wonderful, interesting people say what a piece of shit he is, and then there he was, right in front of me. And I was also sort of partly amazed that in real life he has a sort of fattish body and a tiny, tiny head, like a bizarre real-life face swap experiment that's sort of gone wrong. Uh, Oh, and also I was partly hungover. Yes, that may be also why my voice is croaking. Uh, You know, thanks very much, QED bunch. Uh, So I wasn't quite thinking straight anyway. Uh, Gove also had a child with him, who I assume was his own, although you never really know with Conservative MPs. So, look, I didn't say anything, and I'm sorry, and I feel awful about it. However, uh, Nikesh Shukla, who is the editor of The Good Immigrant Book and a total hero, made a very loud retching noise, so hopefully that'll have made Gove think about his awful, awful life. Uh, hopefully that should hammer it into his stupid brain. Uh, anyway, I mean, what would what would you have done or, or said or have liked to have said? Uh, I mean, drop me a line, let me know, I will revise it, and then should that situation ever occur again, I, I will do that. Um, I'm very sorry I missed the opportunity to shout something in his face, but it's a a very strange situation to be in when you aren't expecting it. And especially when you spent so long shouting at his stupid face on the TV, and then all of a sudden he's right there in front of you, and you can't turn the volume up or down, and he can respond. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, If it happens again, I will definitely at least call him a Weasley bastard before laughing at how quickly he failed to become Prime Minister, before then saying that even a non-expert's opinion of him is that he's an awful, awful human being. I promise. Uh, so, huge thanks to all of you who've donated to the Patreon page. Uh, if you want to chuck a few quid my way for making this show, then you can head to uh, patreon.com forward slash bro and do that there. Um, I still haven't put a video up yet because I've been too busy not shouting at Michael Gove. 
but I will do soon, I promise. And I will be adding some extra content for donators soon as well. A um, couple of other ad mini bits, or ad max, because there's so goddamn much of it. Um, my comedy special, The World's Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, is still available via tnndm.vhx.tv. And if you, the listeners, put in the code PARPOLBRO, spelt as it sounds, uh, you'll get a third off the already very low price. So go and do that. Um, also, tickets are selling very fast for the big charity gig I've helped organise uh, for Help Refugees at Conway Hall in London on November the 8th. But there are still some tickets left. Uh, sadly, a couple of acts have dropped out, but we still do have Frankie Boyle, Sarah Pascoe, Doc Brown, Tez Ilias, Kerry Godleyman, Francesca Martinez, Jen Brister and me, uh, with possibly another quite exciting guest to be announced soon too. So you can grab tickets for that via Conway Hall's website, conwayhall.org.uk, and search for Stand Up for Refugees. And all the donations are going to that wonderful charity. Uh, oh, and lastly, uh, some of you uh, like to tell me on Twitter that you got quite upset last week that myself and Carissa from post Breath Racism pronounced uh, rhetoric, rhetoric, uh, which I think is the American way of saying it. Or maybe, uh, maybe it's just a different word entirely. Maybe it's sort of like R-E-toric. Uh, and I believe Torek is a type of contact lens. Uh, thanks, Google. No, I mean, anyway, uh, very sorry. I'll now pronounce it rhetoric from now on. And uh, I promise this week there won't be any weird pronunciations. OK, so on this week's show, uh, there is a ton of Brexit crap to get through. Surprise! And I'll be talking to Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos about Syria in, well, an interesting interview. But more on that later. First... The big issues at the SNP conference this past weekend were independence, as in Scottish, and dependence, as in childcare. If only they'd had an event about Scottish indie music and a stall selling pendants, they could have had the whole set of things that sound vaguely similar and felt a bit pleased about it. The possibility of a second referendum was the big chat, what with the possibilities of a hard Brexit, meaning that despite deciding to hold England's hand last time as it climbed up to the cliff edge, it was very much just a headbutt it goodbye as it leaped off by itself. Nicola Sturgeon said that the anti-foreign rhetoric from the Conservatives and the possibility of leaving the single market were two strong reasons for a second referendum. That, and if they go now and set up proper borders, they can stop Liam Fox from ever coming back in. But Nicola Sturgeon's main speech was actually about, as she said, another I-word. No, not iffy taxidermy, the taxidermy of fish, because that'd mean career-wise Sturgeon would be stuffed. Hey, a pun. No, it was inclusion which she meant in a number of ways, though obviously not towards being part of the UK, judging by her earlier chat. Firstly, the inclusion is the aim to increase living wage employers in Scotland from 600 to 1,000 by October next year, though that is the living wage as determined by former Chancellor and Westworld inspiration George Osborne, rather than the one people could actually live on. Sturgeon also pledged a consultation to fund paying for parents to choose the nursery or childcare that best suits them, and to start supplying boxes of useful things to expectant parents in the new year. Baby boxes, as they're known, uh, aren't just an efficient way to post your baby somewhere to allow easier stacking in a postal van. No, instead they are based on the finish model, where they are filled with essential baby items such as clothes, nappies, frankincense and myrrh, probably, and in the case of Finland have helped contribute to the lowest infant mortality rates in Europe. It's a great idea, but you can't help but wonder if this is just a sneaky first step towards Scotland severing itself from the UK and joining Scandinavia with all the Vikings. I mean, Scotland already have oil, big jumpers and beards, and with baby boxes as well, all they'd need is to bring back Taggart as a noir series and bang, they're in. UKIP get through leadership candidates quicker than Strictly Come Dancing gets rid of all its non-white contestants. Both of which I'm pretty sure are linked somehow, but I'm held back by not being 100% sure if UKIP members are clever enough to use phones or not. 
Stephen Wolfe, the man last seen in a picture where it looked like Nigel Farage was giving him a tug job in a hospital bed, has resigned from the party, saying there was something rotten in them. I'm pretty sure it's the old-fashioned racist politics that are now so out of date that they're decaying. But anyway, after allegedly being attacked by fellow MEP Mike Hookham and hospitalised, Stephen Wolfe has decided he will instead be an independent MEP until the UK leaves the European Union and makes him thankfully redundant. It seems he actually had some sense knocked into him, and you can't help but wonder if the cure for believing in a nationalistic, narrow-minded party is just to violently knock out every UKIP member in turn. Hey, I mean, it's worth a try. Labour leader Jammaster Jeremy Corbyn has attacked the Home Affairs Select Committee, saying that their anti-Semitism in the UK report unfairly focused on the Labour Party. The report criticised Corbyn for a lack of consistent leadership on the issue, which, to be fair, misses out that that is in line with his lack of consistent leadership on every issue. They stated that the failure of the Labour Party to consistently and effectively deal with recent anti-Semitic incidents shows that elements of the Labour movement are institutionally anti-Semitic. But Corbyn said that they heard evidence from too narrow a pool of people, and that other critics in Labour say that the committee was mostly either Conservative or Labour members that then went on to vote against Corbyn in the leadership, and therefore it was biased. But let's be fair, there's no real point in investigating any of the other parties, like the Conservatives for anti-Semitism, as racism is now so much part of their remit it's sort of expected. I mean, MP David Wilshire in 2009 saying that the expenses scandal meant MPs were treated like Jews in Nazi Germany. Or another Conservative MP, Aidan Burley, helping and partaking in a Nazi-themed stag party. Or the head of the UCL Conservative Society saying Jews own everything. Or the Tory candidate for Derby Council who in 2015 said she'd never support the Jew, meaning Ed Miliband. Or the deputy chair of the Bradford Conservative Association who made inappropriate comments about Jewish people and women in 2016. But I mean, there's no point in investigating all of that in the Conservative Party, as two of them were suspended temporarily and the rest said sorry and stayed in their jobs. So that's totally dealt with, yeah? I mean, Corbyn should take a leaf out of their book. But let's be fair, it is a cheap excuse to say, well, someone else did it first, to justify Labour's lack of dealing with it. So just saying the committee are wrong probably isn't the strongest response. However, Rhea Wolfson, who is Jewish and a Labour MP and was targeted with abuse after standing for the Labour NEC, she has backed Corbyn and also disagrees with the report and she says that there needs to be an open culture of education on these issues. The Home Affairs report also criticised Twitter, saying that it hosted vast swathes of hate speech aimed at Jewish people. Now, let's be fair guys, Twitter hosts vast swathes of hate speech against everyone. If nothing else, it's very equal about not dealing with racism in all corners. Syria is the latest instalment of complicated situations in the long-running series, The Middle East. Trying to explain exactly what's going on over there is a hugely complicated thing, with more twists and turns than a George R. R. Martin book about winding roads. And while there are many blame-pointing fingers, there isn't really one single cause of the biggest humanitarian crisis since World War II. There are many causes, including religious tensions, meddling from foreign countries including the UK, oil consumption and severe drought caused by extreme temperatures. And this week, in the House of Commons, MPs discussed the situation in the Syrian city of Aleppo, the forefront of fighting between the Syrian army, the rebels, Kurdish control, and it's currently close to the areas taken by IS militants. However, casualties have been dramatically increased after bombing, and the US and UK say that that is largely to do with Russia, with US Secretary of State John Kerry saying that Russia are responsible for crimes against humanity, and that it could all stop tomorrow if Moscow just acted decently. 
UK Foreign Secretary and host body for a mophead Boris Johnson last week called for people to protest outside the Russian embassy in London. Because, you know, that won't cause tensions to rise in any way. Russia have now, though, promised an eight-hour humanitarian pause this week in order for aid to be delivered to civilians in Aleppo, but UN agencies say they need at least 12 hours to be effective, so it seems it's just an empty gesture. Meanwhile, MI6 heads have warned against the UK protesting against Russia as it could lead to further tensions, and today the state-owned news channel Russia Today has had its UK bank accounts frozen. So, you know that bunker you are planning to build in case Trump gets in? That's right, add another layer to the roof. And of course, all of this is ignoring that the UK and US are also responsible for civilian casualties, albeit not as many, from their bombing efforts, meaning all of this is a big pile of depressing horror. So, this week, I spoke to Dr Marcus Papadopoulos, the editor of non-partisan politics site politicsfirst.org.uk, a website that I regularly use for info for this podcast. Uh, Marcus is also a doctor of Russian history and knows rather a lot about Syria, so I asked him to explain a bit about what is currently going on, and he very kindly agreed to have a chat with me. Now, what I will say, and I'm going to be tactful about this, as Marcus was very, very kind to let me interview him, and he uh, seemed like a very, very nice man. But I think that while Marcus says a number of extremely interesting and very valid points that are all very worth listening to, I can't say I entirely share his opinions as they get uh, rather sort of pro-Russian at times. Uh, However, it is a view that you don't hear very often on UK news sites, and I think that's important. Uh, And I ask that simply you listen and feel free to, you know, email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com afterwards if you have any thoughts or opinions on what Dr. Papadopoulos says. Uh, I'm certain you will. I should also say that when I started out uh, with this podcast, I very much set out to make sure it wasn't a debate show. Uh, It was me asking my interviews questions for their opinions. And so that's exactly what this is. Even if, as I said, I can't say that they all resonate with me. And so in between parts one and two of this chat, I've put some other thoughts on the Syrian matter for balance. Oh, and halfway through, uh, Marcus's lovely sounding dog, Erica, interrupted with some very loud barking. I've had to edit Erica out, which I feel quite bad uh, making her lose her 15 seconds of fame. So she will appear at some point in this podcast. Right. Phew. So now here's Marcus. OK, uh, Marcus, so uh, easy question first. Um, I say that sarcastically. Um, what is going on in Syria? Uh, it seems like the most complicated situation in the world. Uh, it seems sort of part religious tensions, part terrorist organisations, part other countries meddling and part global warming. Is that sort of right? Well, first of all, it's very important to clarify this. The conflict in Syria, which is now in its fifth year and which is an extremely brutal conflict, is not black and white. It is not a matter of freedom versus tyranny, as is being projected by the West, in particular the American government and the the British government. Uh, Syria um, has long had a problem, an internal problem, with radical Muslims, with Islamists. From 1976 to 1982, there was an Islamist uprising in Syria. And in 2011, during the so-called Arab Spring, Islamists in Syria saw the opportunity to try and replicate events in Tunisia and in Egypt. And almost from day one, this so-called peaceful protests in Syria, peaceful protests according to the Islamists and according to their backers in Washington and London, were not peaceful. Uh, During the first few days of the protests, uh, police officers, 
uh, were murdered, were mutilated by the protesters. Uh, military officials were once again murdered and mutilated by protesters. Now, I'm not saying that the government, the government, the Syrian government's response to those protests in the early days uh, were perfect. Of course, they weren't. They made they made mistakes. But the point is that that Syria is now experiencing uh, another Islamist uprising, and of course, the Americans are opportunists, and they are known to be opportunists in terms of their foreign policy. And they have long wanted to overthrow the Syrian government, to destroy the Syrian state. Why? Because Syria follows an independent foreign policy. It does not bow down to the diktats of the Americans. And of course, uh, is, uh, Syria has very close political and military relations with Russia, uh, going back to the 1960s. Uh, Syria, of course, has close relations with Iran, and of course, uh, Syria constitutes uh, Israel's number one adversary uh, in the Middle East. So the Americans saw an opportunity to use the different Islamist forces which erupted in Syria in 2011 and try and overthrow the Syrian government. And the Americans and the British, of course, have used their regional allies, Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, to try and achieve this. Now, people listening to what I'm saying might think the Americans and the British teaming up with Islamist terrorists. Well, yes, the West has a long history of working with radical Islam. And it all began during the 1980s when the Soviet army was in Afghanistan fighting the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen uh, was a mosaic of different Islamist groups. And of course, the Americans uh, were arming the Mujahideen to the teeth with weapons, including, of course, Osama bin Laden. Now, the Soviet army withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989, and the Americans were mightily impressed with the Mujahideen. So, when the, when the civil war erupted in Bosnia in 1992, uh, the Americans facilitated the arrival of the Mujah of uh, the Mujahideen from Afghanistan into Bosnia to fight alongside America's allies in that war, the Bosnian Muslims, against America's enemies, the Bosnian Serbs. And then we can have a look in Libya in 2011, when once again the Americans and the British, they teamed up with Islamists to overthrow uh, the legitimate leadership of Colonel Gaddafi and the legitimate authority of the Libyan government. And now in Syria, we are seeing exactly uh, the same, where the Americans are using Islamist forces to try and overthrow uh, the Syrian government. And yes, that applies to ISIS as well, because who has funded ISIS? Who has equipped ISIS? Who buys ISIS oil? Well, Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And those countries would not act unless they receive a green light from the Americans. So the Syrian army, which is the only legitimate armed force in Syria, is fighting uh, to neutralize, uh, to expel the Islamist terrorists on its territory right. and the jihadists, which are flocking into Syria on a daily basis through Turkey. And the only uh, moderate armed force in Syria is, of course, the Syrian army, because the Syrian army is composed 
of all the different uh, religious uh, and ethnic minorities in Syria, from the Shia to the Sunni uh, to the Druze and to the Christians. And the Syrian army, by uh, fighting uh, courageously, as it has been doing for the last five years, Islamist terrorism, is not just countering Islamist terrorism in Syria and in the Middle East, but in the world as well. Because those people who the Syrian army is fighting every single day of the week and killing every single day of the week are the same people, ideologically speaking, who carried out the London bombings, who carried out the Paris bombings, and who carried out uh, the Brussels bombings. And these people, if they were to ever win on the battlefield in Syria, which I do not believe they will, but if they were then the threat uh, to London, for example, would increase tenfold. Wow. So so I, I fully, um, I mean, thank you. That was a, an incredibly clear um, explanation, which is hugely helpful. But I, I, I see what you're saying in that it's very uh, murky waters as to the, the whole situation. But I, I, um, I understand what you're saying in that the Syrian uh, army, obviously the, the only legitimate side, but obviously... As you said, like, there's a lot of questions about Assad and uh, whether he's committed war crimes, um, and and also as well as uh, information I, I've, I've heard before about obviously the UK and the US supplying uh, jihadists with weapons. There's also some uh, there's there's been talk of uh, I believe the Syrian government sort of supplying um, ISIS with oil. Um, I mean, is this all really is is this one of those situations where it's kind of working with the lesser of two evils? Or, you know, how does that work? <laughs> no. First of all, uh, ISIS have oil. How have they obtained oil? Well, they've obtained oil by taking over oil fields, capturing oil fields from the Syrian army. And ISIS has been uh, selling its oil to Turkey. And there is very, very credible evidence to prove that the Turkish government has been buying ISIS oil and President Erdogan, the Turkish leader's family, is involved personally in buying oil from ISIS. That is very important to establish. President right. Erdogan is an Islamist. He's a very, very dangerous leader in the region. Now, in regard to President Assad, people who were familiar, for example, myself with Syria, many years ago, we always suspected that the day would come when the West would begin the process of demonising President Assad in order to try and overthrow him. Now, the reality about President Assad is completely different to what you hear in Britain and what you hear in America. President Assad is an Alawite, which is an offshoot of, uh, of Shia. Right. President uh, Assad is as secular, is as multicultural as you can get. He is married to a Sunni woman. Now, if President Assad hated Sunnis, if President Assad is massacring Sunnis in Syria, his own people, out of hatred, why on earth would he marry a Sunni and have children with her? Why is the vast majority of the Syrian high command Sunnis? Indeed, why are most regular Syrian soldiers Sunnis? 
that is a complete lie by the West. That is a way of the West building up domestic support against uh, President Assad and of trying to justify the support to the terrorist militant groups who are fighting against him and to uh, try and prepare the domestic audience in Britain and America for possible Western strikes against the Syrian army, which I do not believe will happen, but that's what they're trying to do. Another point again uh, about President Assad, every Christmas, every Easter, where will you find him? You will find him in the churches, in the monasteries in Syria. Why? Because he protects the two and a half million Syrians who are Christians. Why is it that all of Syria's Christians, all of Syria's uh, uh, different uh, Christian denominations, from the Orthodox to the Catholics to the Protestants, all support President Assad because they know that he protects all the different groups in Syria. They know that he's a firm supporter, um, a guardian of uh, Syria's secular uh, constitution, of Syria's multicultural constitution. And you hear the archbishops in Syria, the bishops in Syria, saying, why is the West, why are Christian countries, Britain and France and uh, America, uh, ignoring us? Why are they ignoring the fact that President Assad protects Christians? Why are they supporting Islamists um, to kill Syria's Christians, to destroy churches and monasteries? Uh, to desecrate uh, Christian monuments. For example, a couple of years ago, the uh, al-Nusra and the so-called Free Syrian Army, which the West is supporting and which the West uh, claims is moderate, but it's not. The Free Syrian Army, the FSA, is a mosaic of Islamist terrorist groups. The Free Syrian Army and al-Nusra, a couple of years ago, teamed up, which they do in most parts of Syria, and they took over... Uh, an ancient town in Syria called Malula. Right. That is an ancient Christian town where the inhabitants still to this day in 2016 speak the language of Jesus Christ, Aramaic. They took over that town from the Syrian army, not for a long period of time, thank God, but they did take it over. And they destroyed and wrecked priceless Christian icons. Priceless. And there was not one word of condemnation from the West because the West turns a blind eye to those sort of barbarous activities because it's their proxies who are committing them. So, in short, President Assad stands for multiculturalism in Syria. He stands for secularism in Syria. You will find him in the churches, in the monasteries uh, at Christmas. And, uh, and, and Easter, and many Syrian Christians will say all the time, why is the West doing this to us? Why are so-called Christian countries supporting Muslim fundamentalists to kill our people every single day and try to wreck our home, which of course is secular, multicultural Syria? So is it sort of very similar to... Uh 
that sounds very similar to kind of what happened to Gaddafi and what happened to um, Saddam, um, uh, Saddam Hussein and that kind of, there was many years where they, uh, in the eyes of the news over here, they were all right. And then suddenly they were awful uh, and and needed to be destroyed. You know, it's suddenly the, the narrative changed. I mean, I remember there was many years where Saddam Hussein was very pally with sort of uh, UK and US leaders and then all of a sudden wasn't. And is that a similar... Well, you, you raise a very important point about Saddam Hussein and uh, how he was friends with Iraq, um, with the West. Well, you often hear American and British politicians and journalists talk about the crimes of Saddam Hussein. Um, and I'm not saying that he was a nice person. However, he was the legitimate leader of Iraq, whether you like him or not. That is the way international law works. I detest the Saudi royal family because they are the leading exporters in the world of uh, religious extremism and terrorism. However, I do not believe that they should be overthrown from outside. I don't believe there should be a war against uh, Saudi Arabia because that contravenes international law. But I do think some sort of action should be taken about Saudi Arabia. But going back to Saddam Hussein, we hear the Americans and the British justify the illegal invasion of Iraq in 2003 on the basis of Saddam Hussein's terrible crimes against his own people. And they often cite when Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons against the Kurds in Halabja in uh, 1988, which of course was a disgusting, horrific thing. Who supplied him with those chemical weapons? Uh, who is Americans. it? Yeah, I was going to say, the yeah. Americans supplied him with those chemical weapons. Who helped to arm him to the teeth? The Americans and, of course, uh, the British and, of course, the French. So let's have none of this when the Americans condemn people like Saddam Hussein because they are the ones who helped him kill, gas, drop chemical weapons on the Kurds. And if we talk about Colonel Gaddafi, once again... I don't believe he was a very nice person, no. but two things. He was the legitimate leader of Libya. Secondly, he crushed Islamism in Libya. And under him, Libya was a, quite a stable country. And also it was quite progressive for its people. There was rights for women, their education, their transport, their healthcare was very, very good. Um, and... Libya today, since he was overthrown by the Americans and the British and the French using Islamists, has become a failed state. It is now a base for ISIS and other Islamist terrorist groups. And you don't hear any apologies from the Americans or the British or the French for what they have done. So when they talk about this threat to Europe uh, from radical Islam, they are the ones who have been using uh, radical uh, Muslim groups Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To, to try and achieve their geostrategic objectives, and thereby they are the ones endangering their own citizens now. We'll be back with Marcus in a minute. But first, a few bits of info that I found, and so let's face it, might not be fully 100% correct, uh, all about the situation in Syria. Yes, that's right. I don't have much time to write the podcast this week, and I've got a sore throat, so I chose a nice, easy subject to chat about and investigate. Yes, I'm such an idiot. So here's a few key points that are worth thinking about. Firstly, a quick intro into why Syria is in such turmoil. Yes, a quick intro. Strap in. It's not particularly bumpy, I'm just all about health and safety. So, Syria is bordered by Turkey, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, and by just a teeny-weeny toe at the bottom, Israel, who actually shouldn't really have that land that's next to Syria, and they shouldn't really give it back to Syria, but that's a story for another day, because, oh lord, that is a mess. And while Syria looks pretty big, only about a quarter of the country is suitable for living or growing things on. The rest is desert, and between 2006 to 2011, it experienced a drought more serious than your single friend who won't stop telling you about it. Massive dust storms, bigger than those in your single friend's pants, removed lots of topsoil and a huge lack of rainfall during those five years meant that Syria's agriculture industry was damaged, and as that supplied 20% of the country's income and employed 17% of the population, that hit them really, really hard. As soon as the civil war started, they also lost 20% of their national income from oil, and you realise that Syria don't really have enough resources or income to support the population. So already, they're in a trickier situation than your single friend who could really improve their life if they just spent less time on the phone telling you how single they are. Now look, history-wise, the whole country is so complicated, it should just be renamed Syria! And I really don't have time on this show to go through it all, nor do I entirely understand it. But currently, around 74% of the country are Sunni Muslims, including Sufis. About 13% are Shias, and then about 10% of the country are Christians, and about 3% are Druzy. And I guess you would be too, in that heat. Am I right? As well as a mix of religions, there is a mix of heritage, as not all the Sunni Muslims are Syrian. Uh, There is a large percentage of Turkish and Kurdish too. Now, the Assad family are Alawites, which is a minority in Syria, with only about one in eight Syrians, and only a quarter of a million people in Lebanon and Turkey of that faith overall. So when Hafez al-Assad started the first Assad regime, it was as part of the secular nationalist Ba'ath Party. It might be Ba'ath Party. I don't really know. It looks like a long bath, which is great. And that party, Ba'ath, had the noble notion of wanting to bridge the equality gap through a type of socialism and create unity amongst Muslims and other religious groups in Syria using a sort of modified version of Islam. Islam 2.0, if you like, available exclusively on the Apple Mecca. 
No, I'm, I'm not sorry at all. Hafez al-Assad became leader of Ba'at Party in 1971, then president of Syria that same year, which hugely irked the opposition Muslim Brotherhood Party, who believed a Muslim should be president of the country. And so riots broke out and shit went down for years, leading to terrorist attacks and all sorts of other terrible, terrible mayhem. Lots of civilians died, and Assad launched a particularly brutal assault on the city of Hama, which then, afterwards, was followed by a period of reconstruction where Hafez al-Assad rebuilt that city with schools, hospitals and new mosques, all with the sort of aim of stopping further challenges against him by making the people actually happy. Now, zoom forward a few years, like a really lame Doctor Who, through the Iran-Iraq war where Syria sided with Iran, and then in 1991 where Syria sided with the US against Saddam Hussein, and wham, we're in 2002, the last time the year was the same when written backwards. Uh, Havez al-Assad died in 2000, and his son Bashir, the one that we all know, took over. By this point, Syria had a pretty decent GDP and a decently educated population. Bashir al-Assad's first win was with an unopposed ballot in 2000, followed by a win in 2007 against, oh wait, no one again. And in that one, he got 97.5% of the vote, meaning that there were 2.5% that were really, really hoping there was an invisible person just waiting for their chance on the other team. You sort of wonder why they bothered to have a vote at all, really, if it's not that democratic. Or at least Bashir al-Assad should have had to take on his own shadow in a boxing match or play himself at chess while wearing different hats for each side. I mean, come on, mate. Anyway, 2002, US President Bush decides Syria is part of the axis of evil as they were so helpful in fighting Saddam. Wait, hang on, that doesn't quite... I'm almost certain George Bush didn't really know where Syria was. In 2003, US airstrikes targeted a refugee camp just outside Damascus, and the Syrian armed forces were unable to stop it. And then the US Congress passed the Syria Accountability Act, saying Syrians supported terrorism and were occupying Lebanon and using chemical weapons, which is kind of odd, because at the time Syria were trying to improve foreign relations, including making pally with the American-imposed Iraqi government and having various talks with European leaders. But still, in 2010, the US imposed new sanctions anyway, ruining further revenues Syria could get from its oil exports, because, well, I mean, America just says fuck you because it's American. I mean, I don't know what America's official reasons were, but considering little had actually changed in Syria, the US may as well have just sent over a sarky Californian teenager to say, America says you aren't her friend anymore because before popping a bubblegum bubble right in their face and fucking off. So, then followed drought, dust storms, livestock died, and Syrians were suddenly in extreme poverty to the extent that the UN said it faced social destruction, pretty much like your single friend. The Syrian government had sold off all its wheat reserves on the world market in 2006 for profit, meaning that by 2008, in mid-drought, they had to export the little they still had in order to keep money going while starving their population at the same time. Well, except for the celiacs. Ovs. Nice one, wheat intolerance. The population that lived in the drought-struck countryside moved into the cities, and then in 2011 a group of protests in Dara kicked off about the government not helping them, and Assad thought that the best way to get everyone to just take a large chill bill would be a massive army crackdown, because clearly he's definitely not into Feng Shui. I mean, imagine being Assad's friend with that kind of attitude. Hey, you want to chill out, Bashar? Sure, how about I shoot you in the leg? No, mate, no, that won't work. I was thinking Netflix. Of course, the whole military crackdown went horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, riots kicked off, military force was used, and then Tony Stark and Steve Rogers got all sassy, and boom, civil war. Oh, no, wait, no, wait, that's the Marvel film. So, now, you have a number of Muslim Syrians on the side of Assad, but on the other side, the rebels, you have a number who don't agree with the Syrian government's Alawi and Christian affiliations. 
But then you also have the rebels, who are Syrian Muslims who want to overthrow Assad, and rebels who are foreign Muslims who want to fight Assad as part of a larger battle for a more Muslim world. Then it gets, yes, even more complicated. As you have Russia now backing the Syrian government against the rebels, then you have foreign organised insurgent groups made up of Chechens, Turks, uh, Pakistanis, French, Egyptians, Libyans, Tunisians, Saudi Arabians and Moroccans, and groups like Al-Nusra Front, who are a radical guerrilla group, and this bunch are supported by Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the EU, the UK and the US, even though were any of those groups operating in any of their countries, they'd consider it an act of war and imprison a lot of them. But then, on top of all this, you have ISIS, who are a big old bunch of fundamentalists who everyone is against, and they all just snuck in to use the conflict to try and gain more ground, making everything so much worse. Oh my god, they are the worst! And since the civil war kicked off, the FBI say that Assad has tortured at least 10 European citizens, there is well-documented use of barrel bombs by the Syrian Arab Air Force, and Assad's regime has been documented by the Physicians for Human Rights as responsible for the deaths of over 600 medical staff so there's no way he's in the right as well. Plus, there are records of the Syrian government using chemical weapons on Syrians, and the overall stats of deaths caused by Assad's regime is somewhere currently in the region of 92,000. Yeah, horrific. Assad regime in more than one way. Now to some other stats. Uh, impartial not-for-profit monitoring group Air Wars say that the US-UK coalition aiding some of the rebels um, but saying that they want to protect civilians have caused about 900 civilian deaths in 26 months, only 12 of which they've admitted to. But Air Wars say that Russian raids in just the last 12 months have caused 3,600 civilian deaths even though they say they are only targeting terrorists. Yeah, seemingly with a surgical precision that were a doctor to use it to take your appendix out, you'd wake up still in one piece with your appendix, with everyone on all the neighbouring wards completely dead. When you see that ISIS have killed 3,078 people overall, while the Syrian government, as I've said before, have killed 92,000, Russian forces have killed 3,600, rebels 2,470, and the coalition just 768 so far, you sort of wonder on who the focus should really be on and challenging. But it's not easy. And as Marcus says in our interview, it really isn't black and white. It's also very, very grey, with Aleppo right now bang in the middle of the worst of it, and many, many innocent people suffering as a result of all the bombing and all the fighting from all sides. And Boris Johnson, a man who thinks Africa is one country, vocally blowing off out of his mouth who's the worst, really isn't going to help all that much. Now, back to Marcus. This week we had uh, in the House of Commons, there was a sort of emergency debate about confronting Russia over its part in the humanitarian crisis in, in Aleppo. Um, and I was sort of reading statistics. I think they said like it's uh, something like 3,600 casualties from Russian uh, civilian casualties from Russian bombs over the past year. Obviously, US, UK have also caused quite a lot of casualties. Um, so, I mean, are, are Russia entirely to blame? What... Could other countries feasibly do about it? You know, why are they discussing this now rather than a year ago, two years ago? No, the, the Russian military campaign in Syria is legal. It is in, in accordance with international law. Why? Because the Syrian government, which is the only legitimate authority in Syria, requested Russian military assistance in its fight against the Islamist terrorists over a year ago. The American-led coalition, uh, which is operating in the skies of Syria, is acting illegally because they have not been invited in by Damascus. The Russian military operation in Syria, which has been going on for over a year now, 
has enabled uh, the Syrian army to liberate much of Syrian territory, which was uh, occupied by ISIS, by al-Nusra, and the Free Syrian Army. Now, when we hear uh, allegations that the Russian military is killing civilians in Syria, we have to uh, analyze who the people are claiming this. So, the Americans and the British feel that because of Russian military intervention in Syria, they're going to fail in their objective in Syria, which is to overthrow the Syrian government and replace it with an Islamist regime in Damascus. So they have to try and discredit the Russians. They have to try and denigrate right. the Russians. Secondly, who are the Americans and the British, for example, relying on when it comes to these uh, reports of uh, the Russian military killing civilians in Syria? Well, they are relying on, in particular, uh, an organization, a group known as the White Helmets. Now, officially, the White Helmets are rescue workers in Syria. The reality is that the White Helmets are Islamist fighters. There, is, there are photos and footage of White Helmets firing machine guns at the Syrian army, firing YP, uh, RPGs at the Syrian army and posing next to the bodies of dead Syrian soldiers and civilians. These people, the White Helmets, have every reason to want to discredit the Russian military because that enables the West uh, to try and convince its domestic, its respective domestic audiences to justify uh, an air attack against the Syrian army. We also have an organization known as the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which um, CNN, Sky News, BBC, uh, the Foreign Secretary in Britain and the Secretary of State in America often cite as credible, reliant uh, sources when it right. comes to Syria. Well, the man who runs the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is a known opponent of the Syrian government. The last time he was in Syria was in 2000. He lives uh, in a house in, I believe it's Coventry, in Britain. Right. He's one man who knows what's going on in Syria from his house in Coventry in Britain. That is ludicrous. Yeah. No court of law would regard him as a uh, as an objective person, as a trustworthy source. So when you hear these allegations that the Russian military is killing civilians, ask who are saying, who are claiming it, what are the sources, and what do these people have to gain? And always consider how the, how a court of law would approach these people and their sources and and sort of on, on a on a bigger question than i suppose sort of uh not just about russia but i mean is is bombing syria uh at all from anyone is that helping is that helping the situation i mean it's it's they say it's something like 150,000 civilians have been killed in the war overall between sort of 2011 and now uh, by by all sides i mean 
I'm, I'm, I'm sort of quite a pacifist, really. So whenever I hear, like, a, a in December when the UK government got together and quite cynically said, "Let's, we have to bomb Syria for peace," which I thought was a ridiculous term. But you know, is it is it uh, is this actually having an effect? Is it is it making sense that that's what they do? No. If we go back to the House of Commons debate late last year, uh, when the uh, when the chamber voted uh, to take uh, action against ISIS. That was more a demonstration of political and moral support to the Americans. Because how many British aircraft have been involved in the attacks against ISIS, allegedly involved in the attacks against ISIS? About six or eight. I mean, right. that is ridiculous. That's, you know, you compare that to the Russian Air Forces campaign against ISIS and all the other Islamist terrorist groups. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's Britain pretending it is something in the world and uh, it's not that uh, that vote in the house of commons was just a demonstration of support uh to uh to britain's uh, closest friend and ally in the world america and if we're talking about today uh, a possible uh, american airstrike or british airstrike against the syrian army well that's um that's fanciful because uh in Syria, they have uh, the most potent air defense systems in the world, operated by the Syrian military and the Russian military. And those air defense systems are the S-300, the S-400, and the Pansir. So, for the American Air Force, British Air Force, to attack the Syrian army, they have to penetrate those air defense systems. For the, for, the, for the American and British Air Force to attack the Syrian army, they would have to penetrate the Syrian air defense system, and the, uh, which is also uh, run by the Russian military. And that's not going to happen. Uh, for the Americans and the British to fire cruise missiles from the eastern Mediterranean, from their naval vessels in the eastern Mediterranean, those cruise missiles would also have to penetrate the uh, Syria's air defense systems which isn't going to happen. Now, of course, the Americans uh, are a military superpower, and if they want to, uh, um, to prosecute uh, a concerted campaign against the Syrian army, now, of course, some of their cruise missiles could get through, some of their air force would get through, but just imagine, just think about how many American aircraft are going to be destroyed, how many pilots are going to be killed. The Americans are not going to risk that. And then you have the possibility that as a result of them striking the Syrian army, they, that could lead to an escalation in tension, and that could result in a possible, possible confrontation between Russia and America. Wow. So, so in in your opinion, then, what is? Oh God, I mean, it it seems like a, a, a ridiculous question to ask. But what is the best uh, way to seek some sort of decent solution to the crisis in Syria? Then, would it be for the UK and US to withdraw entirely, which is very unlikely, or are, are there other ways that you think that they can get to some kind of actual peace uh, resolution? Like you, I detest war. However, it pains me to have to say that, in my opinion, the only way the conflict in Syria 
is going to end is on the battlefield. And that is a very, very sad reality. But if the Americans and the British and the French and their regional allies, the Turks, the Saudis and the Qataris, if they are genuinely committed to bringing about a peaceful political solution to the conflict in Syria, then they should stop arming the Islamist terrorist groups in Syria. Because if they stopped arming those groups, if Turkey closed its border to Syria, if, clo if Turkey closed down the training camps, the Islamist and jihadist training cam camps in Turkey, then uh, sooner or later, those terrorist groups in Syria will become starved, starved of, of weapons. And, of course, it would become, uh, relatively speaking, easier for the Syrian army to defeat them. However, I don't see any indication from Washington or London or Ankara or Riyadh that they are going to stop supporting the Islamist terrorists in Syria. And therefore, it's down to the Syrian military um, uh, to continue advancing in Syria. And it's down to the Russian military to continue in its assistance to the Syrian military. And let me say this, I don't want to come across as being melodramatic, but the world should be grateful to the Syrian army because the Syrian army is fighting against one of the most repugnant yet formidable threats known to mankind, and that is radical Islam, that is Islamism. And if Syria had fallen to Islamist groups, then the threat, the terrorist threat to the world would be epic. It would be, you wouldn't want to imagine it. And the Syrian army is the friend of ordinary people in the West. And the Syrian army, as I said, is secular and is multicultural and is fighting for its country. So, you know, you can go to Damascus uh, you can go to uh, Aleppo, government-controlled parts of Aleppo, and you will see people doing things that we see uh, on a Friday night and a Saturday night in Western capitals, going out to bars, going out to discos, going out to restaurants and enjoying themselves. That is what Syria is about. But the Islamists do not want that. They want an Islamist state similar to what Saudi Arabia has, where if you change your religion, apostasy, you're executed. Where if you're a homosexual, you're executed. If you're a woman and, you're, uh, you, and you commit adultery, you're executed. If you steal, you can have an eye gouged out. That is what these Islamist groups who are being backed by the Americans and the British want to impose in Syria. And the Syrian army and the Syrian government and the Syrian people uh, the majority, the vast majority of the Syrian people are fighting to prevent that from happening in Syria. And we should be supporting them in that. OK, so um, finally, uh, what are there any sort of uh, because I think, as, as you said, we get one particular point of view, uh, especially in the UK. What kind of are there any uh, apart from uh, politics first, which obviously you're the editor of. Are there any websites, blogs or podcasts that you could recommend that people uh, should look at if they kind of want to make sense of it all or read up on it uh, anymore? 
Well, Politics First, which I'm the publisher and editor of, is a parliamentary magazine. It's a non-partisan publication for the Houses of Parliament. It's written by MPs, for MPs. My views, naturally, do not come into the magazine. So I run articles by the British Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary, uh, criticising the Syrian government, criticising what the Russians are doing uh, in Syria. But I would urge people to try and diversify what they watch and what they read. So I would uh, I would encourage people to listen to podcasts like your one, for example, Thanks. which is minded and which gives an opportunity to someone like myself to offer the other side of the story. I would suggest to people to watch Russia Today or RT. I would suggest to people uh, to watch Press TV, the Iranian uh, state news agency. I would urge people to go onto social media and to uh, and to and to watch how, um, for example, journalists, Syrian journalists in Syria are covering the war there. I think it's very important. I'm not saying that uh, uh, that the media sites which I just cited don't have an agenda. Of course, every media outlet in the world has an agenda. However. Uh, RT, for example, is far more credible in presenting uh, what is really happening in Syria than the BBC uh, or Sky News and CNN. Remember, in Britain, uh, our media, when it comes to foreign policy, is not independent. It follows the line of Downing Street. It follows the line of the Foreign Office. And people must remember that. So when you watch the BBC, BBC News or Sky News, Listen to the words they use when they talk about Islamist fighters in Mali or Nigeria. They refer to them as militants, and they're correct to refer to them as militants. But when they refer to Islamist fighters in Syria, they refer to them as rebels. That is right. quite a distinction because rebels, of course, invokes in people's minds images of uh, innocent, peace loving freedom fighters. Like Lord Byron, who went to fight, uh, who went to Greece to fight against the Ottomans. Right. The rebels are terrorists in Syria. They are no different, ideologically speaking, to their counterparts, to their brothers in arms in Mali and Nigeria. And that is just one example of something that people who watch BBC News and Sky News should be aware of. Thanks to Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos for chatting with me. Uh, his website, politicsfirst.org.uk, is a brilliantly useful resource uh, that, as I said, I use regularly for this podcast. And it has contributors uh, from across the political spectrum. And you can find Marcus on Twitter at Dr. Marcus P. That's M-A-R-C-U-S. Uh, I hope to get some other guests on to talk about the situation in Syria in future. And I'm currently trying to arrange uh, a chat with a couple of them already. Um, I'm also hoping to do a future episode about Russia uh, when I can, as I think that is quite prescient at the moment. Um, again, I'd love to know your thoughts on this week's conversation, so do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro group on Facebook, and partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, and I'll read out or mention any next week. Uh, also, thanks to the QED conference this weekend, uh, I think I have a few guests lined up for the next few episodes. But as always, I'm very happy to hear your suggestions, uh, unless they are rubbish suggestions, then in which case I prefer to see them than hear them. So maybe draw me a picture and send me that instead. I'll also read that out on the podcast, even though it's completely pointless, because that'll be a picture and this is all audio. Though I could do some sort of 
synthesizer special, I suppose, where I just sort of shout smells while touching a sound. Fancy that? Brexit Right, all the Brexit chat this week, which kicked off with Theresa May, an unelected Prime Minister, deciding that the best way for people to take back control with the Brexit vote was to not allow MPs that the people have elected to speak for them to have any say in how Brexit will happen. Nice one. Luckily, Labour's Keir Starmer, the new smart appointment for Shadow Minister for Brexit, is now in charge of questioning the government on what will happen. And as a former barrister, you can tell he makes great coffee on account of his stern manner in getting things done. I mean, I bet he was great at taking people's names in Starbucks. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, bar oh barrister. Oh, oh, I see. Uh, Labour came up with 170 questions for the government on Brexit, proving that if there were this many unanswered questions about ways to leave your lover, it'd probably just be easier to stay together. An apt metaphor for this whole situation, if I do say so myself. I'm not going to read all 170 questions uh, on this podcast because it's not very exciting. But they do range from fishing policies to environmental stuff to border control to are we going to have to say flaky roll instead of croissant, etc, etc. OK, not the last one, but you get what I mean. Uh, and this, backed with cross-party MPs still calling for parliamentary scrutiny, means that we might actually work towards getting a Brexit that actually works for everyone. Or not, as European Council President Donald Tusk has said that Britain's only alternative to a hard Brexit is no Brexit, which is an attitude that I hope he doesn't have towards cheese as well. And Norway has rejected disgrace, disgrace, Liam disgrace, Fox, the disgrace, uh, his request to form a trade deal task force with them. Because A, we haven't left the EU yet, and that could jeopardise Norway's dealings with the European economic area, and B, because Liam Fox is a fucking disgrace, and no one ever wants to do anything with him except his chum Adam Werity, who's also a dick. Meanwhile, two big things, perhaps in long-term effects rather than anything else. Uh, firstly, the Great British Pound is super low, which means if you have savings, they won't grow at all, uh, even though banks should be encouraged to raise savings rates, but probably won't because they're bastards. And adversely, due to interest rates rising, and yes, whenever I hear this sort of chat, my interest rates usually fall sharply, but it could mean that mortgages go up in price. But what this could mean is that with the pound low on global markets, our exports and tourist trade could hugely increase, getting rid of the deficit and putting Britain financially into an okay place. Yay! Oh wait, we don't have many exports and those that we do have we can't trade anywhere because no one knows what we're going to do with our Brexit and travelling here may be hard if our government continue to be racist. Boo! And so really, all we will get is increased food and product costs, as we have to export them from elsewhere at more expensive prices, nearly causing Tesco's to stop selling Marmite. Boo! But I guess some people hate Marmite anyway. Yay for them! But Tesco's have made a deal so that they still have it. Boo for them! But yay for me who eats it lots! Ah, what a mess. Unless, of course, you haven't got any sort of holiday planned and you don't like eating things, in which case, yeah! Thing number two that may have worrying consequences, uh, there are increased calls by both media and some politicians for those who speak out against Brexit to be punished. Those politicians include the idiotically named councillor Christian Holiday, which is sort of like just calling someone Christmas, isn't it? Except in his case, it's one of those sad ones where you get loads of stuff you don't want and the food makes you fart all day. Sad Christmas has now been suspended for starting a petition to make opposing Brexit an act of treason, which is stupid because everyone knows petitions don't work. But also the idea that the 16 million people who voted to remain, plus those who didn't vote at all, are now not allowed any sort of democracy or opinion is absolutely ludicrous and really mimics the frightening chat from Donald Trump in the US saying that the US election is rigged. 
I mean, in that case, you know, if he wins, his supporters will be happy. If he doesn't, they'll blame the system and revolt, even though they are pretty revolting already. Am I right? And similarly, if Brexit doesn't happen how Brexiteers want it to, it's now going to be the fault of the Remainers, even though they didn't vote for a completely unclear, unknowable outcome. So civil unrest is nigh. Hopefully, the first victim of this will be Boris Johnson, with his face like someone stuffed a balloon with beanbags. Because this week it was revealed that Boris wrote a pro-EU column for The Telegraph before deleting it to promote his anti-EU stance instead. Boris? Having no conviction at all? Next you'll be surprising me about the bowel movements of bears in woodland areas. So, that's all for this week's show. Uh, thanks again for lending me your ears like goddamn Romans and country folks. Or uh, Van Gogh, I suppose. And don't forget to give this show a review on iTunes if you've enjoyed it. Every star rating does help drag more people into listening and eventually I aim to build up an army of listeners and then we'll all get together and we're just going to fight other podcast listeners in some sort of audio war involving lots of annoyingly loud headphones on buses and intellectual chats. Uh, also, on the subject of other podcasts, while I hate to increase the possibility that you're going to leave me for a funnier, more interesting listen, please do check out Abe Lincoln's Top Hat podcast and keep it 1600 um, for two interesting podcasts about the US election. Part of the reason I've not mentioned the US election quite as much on this show is because there are so many good US satirical sources covering it so brilliantly, from those two podcasts to other ones uh, to last week tonight. Um, but I am going to be focusing almost entirely on the US election uh, the week before it happens and the week after, and I've got some guests lined up for that, which is exciting. Uh, also, I've been mainlining the Malcolm Gladwell Revisionist History podcast from a few months back, and they are amazing, uh, especially the episodes on the US education system, so really do check those two out. Uh, also, don't forget to check out uh, the Patreon page for this show uh, and drop me a dollar or two. Uh, it's, uh, again, it's patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. Uh, and as always, you can get in contact via at parpolbro on Twitter, parpolbro on Facebook, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. I know I say this a lot, uh, and then it doesn't really happen, but next week's show might actually really be a day late this time. Um, the one time I have done that before, I realised about half of you decided to not listen in protest at my timekeeping, uh, but I write, record and edit this show on a Monday, and next week I'm in Deepest Wales in Aberystwyth on Monday, so that may be a problem unless you want an hour of me just shouting in my car, followed by sounds of the sea. So we'll see what happens. This week's show was brought to you by The Numbers... And the letters. Thanks, Erica. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.